and then cue the Baudrillard mix. The very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is Welcome to another fantastic edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with your hosts, Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins, as always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce today's discussion, consider throwing us a dollar a month of that fiat, that sweet, sweet fiat currency over at www.patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H, or maybe consider dropping us an awesome review on iTunes. Either way, we appreciate y'all. Today, we're having a look at Michel Serres' The Birth of Physics. What made you choose this? My thought process was maybe, because I had mentioned bringing back Thomas Nail, who has yes. worked extensively on Lucretius, and a lot of this material would be good preparation for when I Thomas do, I, comes, whenever we do decide to have him back, and if we do delve in to Lucretius. And I mean, some of this discussion could probably also, if you wanted to jump back for listeners to our episode Marks in Motion, there oh, may be definitely. a little bit of, or, you know, we also did Marx's and we uh, did the dissertation. The, so that's Marx. That's yeah. Epicurus, Epicurus and, versus Democritus. Yes. Which also plays a role in that because, you know, Epicurus was an atomist, as was Democritus, if I'm not mm -hmm. mistaken. Yeah. So what was your kind of thought process? I mean, obviously, I think that that's a great context for listeners who may, especially for newer listeners who haven't delved into the archives so to speak of our uh of our episodes right because last time we had thomas nail on and he's a prolific author you guys listening should, should check him out get his book any way you can we had him on to talk about marks in motion and to prepare for that episode the week before i believe we did the episode on marx democritus democritus and uh, epicurus and um discussed his dissertation which, you know, it wasn't something that was, I don't even think, available in English. I think we said this, right, until like the 50s, something like yeah, that. Yeah, it was um, a fairly recent translation, if I recall. And that was really interesting to read, and it helped to prepare the way for our discussion with Thomas Nail, who I do think we should have back. He's got three volumes on Lucretius, the first of which would be similar to the Marx in Motion book. It's called Lucretius One Ontology in Motion. And uh, I even was 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 looking at it a little bit for the preparation of this talk. So you definitely read my mind because I didn't mention that I was. I just kind of glanced at some of the opening material that he has. And uh, he said something similar to what he says, said to us, I believe he said to us on the episode where he, you know, when discussing Lucretius's text, he avoids translating the Latin corpora bodies as atoms, which is a typical move when translating Lucretius and talking about him because he's 
quote unquote, an atomist, one of the later atomists, you know, following up in the Epicurean school and, <laughs> and from Democritus, uh, Democritus, I, I kind of say it both ways. I don't know why. Anyway, I say, uh, what do I, not Epicurus, I say Epicurus. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, or that was it, my like, that's how I phonetically pronounced it, I suppose. <laughs> it's the emphasis on the right, syllable. Yeah. One of the things I was thinking about is that I, I wanted to do some Michel Serre with you. I've been wanting to get into his work because like Badu, although extremely stylistically different in their writing, but like Badu, I think Michel Serre has a kind of way of writing that thinks the theorem and or the problem, if you want to follow what Deleuze and Guattari say about him in The Thousand Plateaus, but thinks the theorem and the poem together. Serre, he studied at the Naval Academy and then went to um, the Ecole Normale, where he did his dissertation, at least his primary one, on Leibniz. It's a, like an 800-page book on, Ooh, nice. Interesting. On, on Leibniz, which I think was, was proposed to be translated and was supposedly translated for Kleinemann Press, ironically given the topic of today's discussion. It exists in catalogs, but I, I, did a, I did a bunch of searching and hunting and never found the translation. So that book is still untranslated. I've talked to Gil Morihon, you know, our friend, about translating that. He was able to give me a French PDF, a PDF of the French because I don't think the English translation actually exists. And, you know, I've looked at it some. And what's interesting too, and the reason why I bring this up, and also just to say, Michel Serre, another the thinking the theorem and the poem together means like he's mathematically uh, he's trained in the history of the sciences as evidence in this book and as the very title of the book the birth of physics kind of asserts um, i'm just talking in general terms about sayer here and i'll be quick you know so his book on leibniz is is not just philosophically rigorous but has that mathematical scientific background because that's kind of who leibniz was you can't really just focus on the uh, the philosophy or the mathematics. You kind of leave out big swaths of his work. Sayre's published, I think, 50, 60 books. If you look at his bibliography, it's pretty extensive. It's amazing. And he began, if you look at, the, at this book, even though it was published in 77, he began writing it in 1970. So that had been two years after the publication of his Leibniz dissertation, which was in 68, also kind of like Deleuze, right? He was contemporary of Gilles Deleuze, although outlived him quite a while. Sarah was pretty old when he died. I think he was 89. So he was an old guy, but passed a few years ago. But yeah, he's got over 50 books, one of which was translated by Dan Smith. We've had on, right? I think he mentioned in passing, translating the, the little Thumbelina book. Some of his other works, he, you know, a selection of he's got five volumes on Hermes, who for him is kind of this figure of the sciences. He translates messages from like the gods to humans and back again. Right. He's the messenger, a figure which also takes on the form in, in later Sayre's work of the angel who's able to like mediate. And one of Sayre's ideas about science is this translation and mapping of domains and one another which is maybe only significant for this book in the sense in which the birth of physics deals with hydraulics with with flows and in a certain sense whatever is translated is a flowing across from a source to a target and back again because i think for sarah it's a kind of a dynamic ongoing process it's not just a a one-time thing 
in any case, I guess a few things to say is one of the oppositions that he draws, which I find fascinating, is the fact that for him, Lucretius's ontology, if you will, just broadly speaking, is opposed to Leibniz's. And even though he doesn't, that's not the focus of the book, the fact that he comes back to it several times in the book is very interesting, especially for someone who would have dedicated years of his life and staked his academic career on Leibniz, you know, to be so open and so, I guess, generous to the text of Lucretius, you know, who in the Epicurean and the Atomist vision is thinking of bodies or even just on the minimal level void and atoms right whereas for at least for Sayer's reading and i think that it bears fruit i guess it's not a controversial thing for leibniz's world it is uh it's a full vision and one could even say for something like um aristotle if you look at his ontology he's very similar where he says something like nature abhors a vacuum the question of the void in ancient philosophy is a fascinating one in and of itself and something that Badu himself just to bring him up once more before we stop talking about him in being an event he kind of has some meditations which is what he calls his chapters in the book he has some meditations on some of these ancient philosophers and the role of the void in their theory and obviously for Badu the void becomes not just an ontological notion but is mathematical right it's the empty set and at some point we'll have to go into um badu he's he's actually a fascinating writer and he's a very clear writer i think this is the the opposition that's so fascinating right i mean because badu who asserts kind of a thinking the theorem and the poem together on one side is one of the clearest writers whether i agree with him or not on certain issues fine but his style at least his his way of philosophizing in that sense is you know like the direct opposite of someone like Hegel who uses the speculative unfolding of language to really mind fuck you and is at least in terms of clarity you have to read him several times over whereas I think with Badu he's he's he has a very much more direct style I'll just say direct I think with Sarah what's interesting right is that on the other side instead of you know there's a sense in which even though he may sacrifice the mathematical precision of Badu by thinking the, the theorem with the poem together, he, he gets the bonus of being able to weave these extremely transporting and, and kind of poetic lines. And so when you read him, yes, he is rigorously talking about science, but he is not sacrificing any of the poetic fluidity of the French language, which is why uh, it's even a feat that a lot of his work is in translation. Although a lot of it isn't, but I may have told you this, but like Badu reminds me of Simon Don to a certain way, because Simon Don means what he says. And even if there may be an intensity to the work, the philosophy takes precedence where the, the prose is pretty lucid, I will say. And with translating someone like Serre, I might as well try to translate someone like Flaubert, where there is something going on in Serre's text that bears witness, that takes, I mean, even if, how, how do you like even talk about this text as fitting a genre? Is it, is it philosophy of science? Yes. But is it also a kind of philosophy of poetry? Also, yes, right? I mean, he's doing this interesting reading of Lucretius, which is 
you know, and a lot of Lucretius was the only one to philosophize in poetry. We know Parmenides, for example. You could even think of like Heraclitus's the fragments that we have of him almost being a, an antecedent to um, a precursor to like Nietzsche's aphorisms to a certain way, right? The theorem in the poem is not absent in the work of ancient philosophy. Probably even the opposite is true. Aristotle is is an outlier in this domain where his more let's just say putting the science first prose where the mystery is unveiled if you will and the language being translucent to reveal an object that kind of ideological decision in the writing of aristotle i think is very much an outlier if you will in ancient philosophy so there's something about you know ser going back and this is one of his moves that he likes to do where he tries to think of discontinuities in the history of science because he's going to look at lucretius's text and argue for and and not just lucretius because he's bringing in archimedes right who i think is is one of the other champions in the book along with democritus and some of these other figures epicurus that we've talked about but in terms of you know derirum natura on the nature of things or whatnot lucretius's text he's going to go back and kind of show how there are these discontinuities in the history of science when we look back at the ancient sources if we think of them he says something early on in the text that you may remember and i'll pause here and and let you respond he says something really early early on in the text even though it's a passing where he's like there's something about discrediting the state of the sciences or the knowledges of ancient thinkers and thinking of them as like and there's fair say that, you know, we can think of them as being ignorant and being geocentric, even though there were figures like Aristarchus, who, uh, you know, was able to measure the relative diameter of the sun and the moon and blah, 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 and had a heliocentric idea, you know, 15 centuries or how many centuries, maybe 18 centuries before Copernicus. Anyway, Sayer's point is that there's a way in which we like as moderns to like diminish the state of the sciences or understanding in ancient times in order to like narcissistically pat ourselves on the back for the progress that's been made since whether it be the enlightenment or the renaissance or whatnot which ironically was it was in the renaissance where we started getting so many of the lost texts back including the greek sources plato aristotle including lucretius's text Right. So it's interesting that I know the dark ages is a silly term, but it's interesting that that eclipse being lifted is about rediscovering a lot of these ancient sources. But in any case, Sayers does this move a lot where he is kind of trying to show how there's like he'll even look at like ancient Babylonian numismatics and, and, and mathematics and show that the sexagesimal, like the base 60 is something that we see in various forms of computing and various other forms of various algorithms right and so there's there's a way in which Sayer wants to try to show how thinking of science as a mere kind of linear progression in progress uh, well that, that was redundant but a, a kind of linear like building blocks how that's not always true right he he kind of I had the privilege to translate a, a text of his from one of his books on geometry is called uh, chaos in the history of the sciences. And this is like the main kind of argument in that chapter 
that I translated, which is just about how the linearity of the sciences is a kind of ideal that we, or even like a fetish. And even if it had, even if it's not completely wrong to take that as a given is a kind of ideological assumption. And it, it does a disservice not only to the ancients, but also to ourselves by like not being honest about how, let's say the dialectic of, of science and learning works. But I know that was a lot. I'll let you respond to any of that uh, as you see fit. So I guess in terms of the reading, I found him pretty lucid and clear. Wasn't was definitely one of the, not that it wasn't like the easiest reading ever, but it was fairly approachable. He reminded me quite a bit of Deleuze, honestly, just in some of the preoccupations with, obviously with flows and the yeah. sort of mathematical aspect to things. The, the differential. The, right. Yes. Yeah, mm -hmm. precisely. I guess in terms of the genre, I was kind of curious because, you know, obviously I'm still, you know, somewhat of an, a novice. Would you consider this to be, is this speculative metaphysics or speculative ontology? Or is that kind of just, I suppose, ontology would be a subset of metaphysics or... Yeah, I mean, depending on the author, they they could define it in different ways. Like if we, I'm just thinking off the top of my head, this is where terminology gets interesting because someone right, like uh, yeah. someone like Levinas is going to have a, a definition of ontology as as kind of like war and metaphysics uh, being closer to ethics, or vice versa. Leaving him aside, who's who's a fascinating author that I'd love to talk to you about sometime. You do bring back to the the remark I made earlier about it's hard to categorize this right, in yeah. a genre. For example, it reminds me of a question asked to Deleuze and Guattari when they published A Thousand Plateaus. You know, Deleuze was asked, like, where do you categorize A Thousand Plateaus in the quote-unquote genre of literature, or even genre of whatever you want to call it. To a certain extent, they, and I mentioned this before the episode, they talk about reading a thousand plateaus like one listens to a record so they already have a kind of a musical model to it they obviously delve into i mean they delve into a kind of geological stratification of that has ontological bearings they go into politics they go into art they go into anthropology yada 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 and the list says it's a book of philosophy and i think to a certain extent uh, more so than something like anti-oedipus which i do think obviously has a philosophical bearing, but is more of the polemical side of capitalism and schizophrenia. But it's, yeah. but it's similar with, with Sayre's birth of physics, right? Because I do think obviously it has ontological implications and he is asserting a kind of, um, he is finding an ontology within Lucretius's text that is at one and the same time has scientific bearing. Even if it has to be modulated, I'm sure Sarah could have gone into this with quantum fields and quantum mechanics, even if one would have to, and I think this is part of what Thomas Nail tries to do in, in volume one, which we'll have to bug him about when we get him on. There's still something to be found in the Kleinemann, which is one of the, obviously, the themes that makes atomism, that makes Epicureanism work that I think what Sarah is trying to do, and this is why it's not just ontology, but also a kind of philosophy of science, a kind of history of the sciences at the same time, by showing the Kleinemann is a veritable 
principle of physics, right? And showing it's whether it be like in relation to what I was talking to you earlier about the second law of thermodynamics, where heat kind of flows downhill towards, mm -hmm. towards cold and not all heat can be transformed into work, right? So there is an increasing entropy, et cetera. He tries to see the Kleinemann in more modern terms. That's just one example. That's not the only one. So yeah, you've got, you've got that aspect to it. Another subtext of the book is this promotion of a kind of Venusian, Venusian politics as opposed to Mars. And I think this is where Deleuze and Guattari seize upon him in A Thousand Plateaus to say that the war machine is attested to by epistemology. Look at Michel Serre's book on the birth of physics, hmm. where the hydraulic model is opposed to a kind of a royal science of solids. They kind of build off of this privileging of a hydraulic model, of a model of flows, of a liquid history, inventing liquid history, as, as Sarah ends the book with. There are political implications to it, which I think remain less articulated, but kind of swell up and down in the book at times. It's also a reading of, of a great work of literature, of Lucretius's text. Right. So it has literary criticism aspects to it. It is a literary. And this is why I think Sayer's literary style itself, too. I mean, you said he's he's lucid. And I think that's obviously true. It's just that he doesn't write in the way that one might think a book about the history of science or ontology might take. Right. right. He writes, yeah. And he writes in a way that flows just to use this term. And I'm not even yeah. pun on the topic. I'm thinking also kind of about Nietzsche's call for his wish to have written in Italian rather than German because of the, the need for this fluidity of movement, this a speed, if you will, to maybe to accommodate oneself to the vortex, the vortices of thought, the swirling, dancing nature of chaos that kind of Nietzsche romanticizes at times, but also I think takes as, a, as an image of thought. What other genres could one find in there? Is it also metaphysics? I think so. I mean, I think to a certain extent, especially... If one wants to roughly extrapolate from the source of, of the physics of Lucretius's text, implications about the soul, which Lucretius does think in terms of material atomistic composition. And Sarah would just warn, I think, that one of the things, one too quickly takes the Kleinemann and psychologizes it. I think that's what Sarah wants to wants to forego immediately psychologizing the Kleinemann as being just a kind of psychological principle of freedom that there is from equilibrium, the slightest minimal deviation that would be a mere kind of psychological principle of freedom. I think Sarah is wary about that, but includes that within his critique. And I do think that that too is where there is a critical aspect to Sarah's work as well. You could say not necessarily in the Kantian sense, but in the sense of critiquing our own arrogance about the progress of modern science, our own ignorance about the state of ancient science and philosophy. So one could call that epistemology. And that's what Deleuze and Guattari kind of assert, that they find in the birth of physics. And that's not the only thing they find, but I think that that's what at least inspires, I assume Deleuze, but who knows, right? They're a crowd that inspires them. They, they're finding an epistemological critical intention in um, the birth of physics. 
it's not just metaphysics or ontology then, right? It's also epistemology. It, it's a critique of, of our knowledge and the way in which, and for Deleuze and Guattari, that's immediately political, right? It's, it's the way in which states, state science, royal science, whatever, privileges solids, privileges a kind of metric division or it's striating space and blah, blah, blah. All these terms, which are found on those plateaus, which I'll try to be light on here, but you get what I'm saying. So in terms of the genre of the book, I do think it's multifaceted. As I said, like the stylistically, it is prose, but there is a way in which the ideas aren't necessarily first and foremost. It's not obviously dry denotative or even you know, signifying. There's something um, that slips, that slides in the text. And so you do see, I mean, some of the things that I tweeted out, you saw, right, where it's like, I'm a vortex. Sarah says shit like that, where that starts to border on a kind of poetic rhapsody. And so there it too attains not just the status of literary criticism, but the form of one could say literature itself. I'm sure there's more we could like go into in terms of what genres that it does, does or I mean, which ones would we exclude? Because I do think there's an ethics there. I already said there's a politics that already implies a kind of ethics. And as we know, I mean, I've talked to you about this when we discuss Lucretius every now and then about, you know, Lucretius being wary about or thinking philosophy was meant to promote a kind of ethical empowerment where we are not, for example, afraid of death, where fear is the thing that's like motivating the baseness and evilness of, of humans to, uh, to act contrary to whether it be nature or ethical principles or wisdom. And so we, we fear death because we believe, you know, when we die, we split off and are able to like look upon ourselves and, and weep. And we have these fears of this afterlife, this punishment by the gods, etc. I mean, Sarah does delve into some of that later in the book. I know we didn't read that for today, but you can already see that um, I think Sarah finds in Lucretius a kind of whole, a whole scope, a whole spectrum of... Um, of fields of inquiry that that makes his text and Sayre's text kind of uncategorizable or at least polyvalent. I do like how he refers to solids as just very slow moving liquids, mm -hmm. which is a very good arresting criticism of the sort of assumptions that we bring into physical sciences and the way that we interact with things. But it really gets me going in terms of our old friend time and motion because of at different scales can be perceived or time moves at different scales relative to size, right? Which I think gets into a little bit of Sarah's discussion overall in the book because at this kind of like fractal ontological level, I, I brought this up on the show before, you know, the way that a fly for example, perceives the motion of our hand due to their size, they can mm. perceive our motion more quickly and then move out of the way. Obviously, you can kill a fly, so it's not like you can't overcome that. But that just illustrates, I think, in terms of the perceptual app apparatus, that would be like time dilation, effectively, mm. is the scientific concept for it. If you think about the movie, what was it? The Martian or something like that? The Martian or was it? No, uh, that's Interstellar. Right, Interstellar. 
Or is that, yeah, is yeah. That what you're it wasn't. About, no, you're, you're right. It was Interstellar right. because he was Matt Damon was on that one planet, and they had to consider how long, et cetera, et cetera. Like that all came into play. That's interesting too because, like, the way that uh, if we look at our lives, at our phys, or even perhaps our physical bodies, right? If we observe them over, depending on how long the duration of our observation is and what our perspective is, we could be a blink of an eye. You know, we could be we would perhaps resemble a flow, a flow of like a linear flow of human back into human back into human. It's like the snake that emerges from the first human babies back into the mother and so on and so on. Depending on your perspective relative to time and position and size, et cetera, the way that things appear comes into question, right? It's not this eternal stasis. Everything's in motion, right? Which kind of falls into a lot of what Sayre's trying to get at with this idea of solids being just a very slow-moving liquid. Yeah, and you know, part of what you're discussing is is this question of speeds. For example, the speed of light, which is a theoretically a limit, if you theoretical will, theoretically limit, yes. impossible. Yeah, but. It's that traveling close to the speed of light where, depending on our frame of reference, time passes in a different manner. Now, this is something interesting because the question you're bringing up is, is, is actually a very Bergsonian question. This is where the heart of the debate, and if it's debate, disagreement, discussion of the nature of time between Bergson and Einstein, for example, comes into play. And this is one of the reasons why Bergson has led to write duration and simultaneity and to say the great thinker Einstein is is wrong and that is its own fascinating deep dive that we'll have to do sometime because for Bergson he would want to say that this way of framing you brought up the the whole thing about like two brothers or twins right one stays on earth and one goes at the traveling close to the speed of light or whatever in an aircraft and comes back. And we have this kind of common sense way of saying due to relativity, something like, you know, time didn't pass as not as much time passed, whether it be biologically, chronologically speaking for the one traveling at close to the speed of light and Bergson and this is framed in terms of experience or even in terms of, as I said, biological aging usually is what is discussed. And Bergson will want to say that that is not correct. And the problem is, obviously, is that if we speak in terms of biological aging, there's obviously a, a truth to it. But I think Bergson can't have there be this discrepancy. Again, that would be something where in, I, to tie it back to Sayre, what's fascinating too, and I think Sayre himself would speak this way, and I think he does at times, but it's not the main focus of things because he is thinking of, he's thinking of atoms and the elements, for example, which you brought up, sort of the max, if the atoms are the minima, you know, if the void is the zero, and then the, the atoms are the minima, kind of like the Kleinemann is the minimum discrepancy or incline uh, from equilibrium from what between the the curve and the tangent right it's that minimum then the elements in the physiocratic sense right in the in the the kind of ionian pre-socratics right the elements of air fire earth water 
they're like the maxima or something like this, which is kind of interesting to think of, even though they can themselves compose further bodies. In any case, what's interesting is on that level, you can see a kind of the theory of flows bears out, right? That even though I think for Sarah at its state, they would be like limit cases, right? Fire would be a limit case of earth or air and vice versa, which becomes fascinating to think about. This is also where the difference- I mean, it totally is, if you, especially if you think in terms of atom, atomic versus chemical process, literally in the sun, right? It's like the atoms are so close together that they fuse and create, the hydrogen atoms fuse and create energy. And by close together, you mean the pressure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. They're squeezed um, together yeah. to like the maximal limit. And if you, so once you pr reach a certain pressure threshold, then you create heat. Yeah, the density or the light pressure, all of that. I right. guess light yeah. creates heat. Yeah, exactly. Or um, heat creates light, rather. It's just energy. That's what I was going to say too with with Einstein. Why I brought him up at all. Um, energy was... equals mass times the speed of light squared. Right. So with this equation, we do have a kind of modern formulation of this principle that Sarah is is yeah, deriving. It from is almost Lucretius like for yeah. I want to almost say that is the speed of light the Kleinemann, but I don't. I don't know if that's my random brain, like actually, it. I, I guess up on something, or am I like totally off? Like, there's no in between. I, I don't know if we would say it's the Kleinemann itself. What you're seizing upon is the fact that when Sarah talks about something like the Thalweg, which I brought up to you, right? It, which literally means the way of the valley, which is like. The kind of slope that declination, yeah, the deck, the yeah, the maximal declination that that leads to the lowest basin or whatever, right? So you've got these forces working in tandem to cause this like maximal flow. I think that's where this notion of the speed of light as a kind of maximal stream, if we think of the flow of photons or the yeah. way the flow of the waveforms of light as a kind of maximal stream, and obviously the the way of calculating too is the speed of light in a vacuum which is interesting right when we because sarah will talk about these obstacles to be overcome right because flows are obviously going to be maximal in the thalweg in that maximal declination uh that maximal flow when there are no obstacles right so light passing through a medium doesn't he even say though something about like if there were no obstacles that light would travel faster than there's something like that or maybe i just read it incorrectly the calculation what is it 299,000 something kilometers per second whatever 100 and, I think it, I always use mile like 186,000 miles okay. per second so so you see what i'm saying there's something like that right we have to look it up but that constant is meant to be speed of light in vacuum unimpeded and um in any case i guess i will say that your point about the theory of solids of statics that solids being and this is Sarah's point right being the very kind of slowed down flow makes sense not just in terms of chemistry but also in terms of our understanding of relative, I mean the earth has a molten of mass and energy the earth has a molten core for example right that's an even more stark will get your mind really going in the way that I think Sarah wants to yeah I think so and um I think this is why not only <laughs> what's more solid than the earth. You know what I mean? Like from a certain standpoint of common sense, let's say the terra firma, 
that but that's that's the surface right on which yeah, we, exactly. we stand on it's just to moving the, to slower the heart of the earth is yeah. as you're saying it's molten this gets important for Deleuze and Guattari with metallurgy, the, the kind of the science of metal, which again, something fun to talk about at some point. So yeah, you're right. And the way that Sarah talks about the earth is interesting because they'll talk about it as it's kind of filled with these hollows and these cavities and these, uh, which becomes important for the atomism of Lucretius versus Leibniz that I brought up earlier, right? For Leibniz, the plenum is the principle, whereas for, for Lucretius, you need the void for interactions, for flows to communicate, if you will, right? How are you going to have a path if there isn't the void, emptiness, right? For oh, gotcha. Okay. Flows okay. To, to sort of traverse. That is important. I did want to highlight that part of, I guess, why I was thinking about the speed of light in this regard is because of the three, can't remember what he refers to, the Kleinemann, the void, and... The atom, those are like the three. Those are the basic absolutes, perhaps, or not absolutes, but they're they're yeah, they're, they're the three like things that cannot the, be divided further. At least the atom that is true in terms of dividing the void, it becomes a strange principle. Dividing um, by zero, sort of null. Yeah, but in terms of the Kleinemann, the Kleinemann is is, is actually what allows us to think about this indivisibility right because it is the but like they're all angle. they're all like imminent to one another because one thing he wants to make clear is there's no prime mover there's no first mover that has to set in motion right the fall of the atoms that it is already that's already predicated within the whole system or of relations between these three basic right. functions of the universe and we saw that in Marx too, thinking the atom, the the fall of the atoms, we're already thinking streams, right? We're already thinking the line, if you will. We're already thinking these trajectories. And I think that's why Sayre too is thinking already with the Kleinemann being, let's say, a fundamental principle or whatnot of even if it happens here or there, it happens by chance. It calls into question the universality of laws themselves, which I thought was an interesting way of formulating it because it reminded us of our discussion of um, Mayasu and hyperchaos, although that's its own category that we can revisit at some point. I know you said you wanted to, but calling into question the universality of laws with the Kleinemann app kind of operating by chance, we already have to think not just the declination or we're not just thinking the fall of atoms and therefore the line the stream but we're also thinking vortexes right we're thinking vortices because of the Kleinemann right we're thinking and this is where I think you you saw the the relationship with Deleuze because for for Serre we already have a kind of we can call it a primitive calculus this is what it literally is called if you will the method of exhaustion formulated by Archimedes for blah 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 all this shit that we already have with the climate and understanding of that minimal, the infinitesimal is what I think we would call it today following Newton and, and Leibniz, but we already have that minimal uh, deviation from a given, given point. We call it equilibrium, right? Yeah. Um, equilibrium would be the way to, I think, right? Because he wants to discourage the notion of the point because where is a point in a, in a thing without borders, like the universe? Mm -hmm. A thing without an edge, where does, does 
distance even makes sense or not distance, but direction. Like how do you determine directionality of a flow when there is no edge? Yeah. In absolute space, there is no directionality, right? So there is no up or down left or right. And I do think it's interesting too, that with even the notion of universe, you know, with his reading of Lucretius's text, we have this, not just a hypothesis, but almost axiomatically deduced idea about the uh, the plurality, the diversity of worlds, and therefore a, a kind of non-totalizing universe, however paradoxical that might seem, and therefore a sort of plurality of universes, which we say multiverse these days. But again, it's this idea that, that Sayre finds, even though he doesn't talk about multiverses, right? But he kind of discusses, you know, this is a kind of famous section early on in maybe in book two or book one of, of Lucretius's poem, where, you know, we are talking about the diversity of worlds, their birth and death. And so we are kind of, in a certain sense, no longer confined to a universe. Right, that so is already in, in a text, in, a, in an ancient text yeah. like this, we, we already have a kind of conception of, of the multiverse, even though it's a different, perhaps, obviously, yeah. that idea has its own kind of status today that whatever i think again going back to sarah he would want to say it's we have to be careful about i think it would be different than leibniz's possible worlds with leibniz the possible worlds are selected among by some god creator who's choosing the best of all possible yeah worlds. exactly he's giving the atoms or whatever the little nudge to right. start off the motion of the world or the universe rather so with lucretius there are no gods so to speak right he follows epicurus in this way where it's like there are no gods you don't have to worry and if there are gods they don't care about us if they do they don't want to punish us so don't worry they have better shit to do i think that that's part of the interesting sort of ethical implications of this reinvestigation of a of an ontology that I think, again, Sayer kind of starts the book by saying how much atomism or the principles of Lucretius, if not today or still today, but for a long time, were kind of thought as pseudoscientific at best. And I think that this is one of the interesting things that Sayers is doing by relying on a whole multiplicity of, of disciplines, but specifically science itself, physics itself, to dispute that and to find not just a validity, but find something, go against the grain, go against the flow of time mm -hmm. of science, the linearity of science, and show that in an, we can learn a lot by returning to this ancient source. That's why the, the text ends with this invention of liquid history, because it's in this hydraulic notion of history. Sarah himself says, like, history is a physics. It's in this kind of non-linear notion paradoxically of science and of history that we see progress if you will back in the past in something that we had forgotten or repressed or I, at least for the for the listen guachery this isn't necessarily the word that sarah uses in terms of repression which has its own hydraulic metaphor if you will in something like freudian theory of the unconscious the id being like a ball or sorry the ego being like a ball of uh, submerged in in the id or floating in the id is the whole hydraulic model in in freud could be a, a fucking dissertation 
I was starting to see kind of at least at the very least like an etymological correspondence with Freud's use of anaclysis and the Kleinemann that Kleina or yeah Lynn or whatever root aspect of it made I'm me. Not that. Sh- I thought that was kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. And I brought up to you specifically death drive because of the orbital, the falling aspect, and that sort of almost like a declination because an orbit orbiting is falling. It's a controlled fall. I've said this before, but whenever you orbit the Earth, for example, you have to meet the exact speed. A certain speed will keep you traveling around without falling or without shooting off into outer space. I'm not sure if in Freud it's a noun, if it's just anaclysis like cathexis. I do think it's more because the phrase that he uses is um, what's on Lanning's typus, right? Which is the, the what we translate in English as the an, anaclytic type. We have the narcissistic object choice, right? But we have the anaclytic choice as well. The narcissistic choice would be sort of choosing based on our own image. Right. But for Freud, the anaclytic type would be the sort of the opposite where we're kind of choosing based on this manner in which obviously the, the image is again, always the baby suckling at the teat. Right. So the mother is a kind of prototypical anaclytic type because for Freud, when he talks about an anaclytic type, he's not even really talking about persons. He's talking about libidinal uh, history, if you will. He's talking about, and again, libido has its own hydraulic notion, but you know, the way in which the drives, the sexual drive props leans on. And as you said, is inclined on, and we still, we still have the, the word yeah, incline, yeah, yeah. decline, right. all of that relates back to Kleinemann. It leans on the self-preservative drive, right? So there is a sexual component to the the hunger, the, the, the drive for feeding oneself, being fed, if you will, at the mother's breast, prototypically again. So you're right. There is a whole, and again, as I told you, Freud's not a Epicurean. He's not necessarily <laughs> um, thinking in line with Lucretius, but I do think that, that the hydraulic model that Sayre takes from Lucretius, from Archimedes, etc., we can find a kind of hydraulics in Freud which to a certain extent is thinking more to get to the death drive is thinking, you know, in terms of modern thermodynamics and is thinking in terms, obviously he's got a whole, he calls it the economic model, but he's thinking in, in, in a kind of basic inner energetics, if you will. And I think this is why I brought up when Sayre kind of sees confirmed the second law of thermodynamics in the hydraulics of Lucretius's poem, the Kleinemann, et cetera, the minimum declination from equilibrium. I think that that's where you see this notion of entropy. And this is why one of the refrains that he says, and he, he doesn't just write about it here in this book, but in Hermes four distribution, he has a whole essay on the eternal return, which I've translated a billion years ago, but one of the targets of reading Lucretius's physics is this argument against the eternal return, at least in, a, in, in the sense of physics, because Deleuze will take the eternal return and almost make it into a fucking ethics or a categorical imperative. But, and Nietzsche too, you can find that in his work. But for Sayre, if we think about the eternal return 
in the guise of physics or ontology, he sees Lucretius's text as being against that because I think for him, I think the plurality of worlds and universes already precludes it that there would be some kind of that there would be some kind of rebirth or that things would work out in this eternal repetition, right? I think for Sayre, he takes seriously this notion of the contingency of the Kleinemann. And so things don't play out, right? And so for him too, death is not symmetrical with life in the way we can think about in a kind of new agey kind of way. It's asymmetrical. They're not even opposites, really. This is where things get are paradoxical in Sayre's text, but following the logic, I think, um, I think it makes, it makes sense. Interesting. Cause I was thinking about it as far as the, the return of, and the return of difference that kind of made sense as opposed to Sarah. Maybe I didn't read the section that you're referring to where he goes in about the eternal. I do recall reading about the eternal return. He only discusses it in passing. He never really makes it a, a true thing sustain yeah it's not a sustain this is why i think he did as i said hermes four published the same year this is published this is mm -hmm. why he, i think he devotes a whole essay to the eternal return he goes and looks at kant's dissertation on his his whole thing on astronomy i forget the it's about the theory of the heavens and stuff kant's looking at you know he's looking at kant and saying kant does something similar as we see in democritus Ep epicurus we introduce you, you start with equilibrium you have you have a minimal shift that's how you have existence at all i think for sayer even someone like zizek says stuff like this right that but he turns it he likes to be dramatic and he, he'll turn existence into this something didn't compute something fell out and so existence is this whole botch right it's this whole like failure of things to like even out yeah. if you will because if there's an equilibrium, then everything would be static. Everything would be at zero, at a zero point without motion. I think Sarah would say everything would, wouldn't be, which is another way of saying there would be nothing. <laughs> so nothing would fall out. The, or one could say without the Kleinemann, without that minimum deviance, without the, the fault, if you will, you would never have atoms meeting at least if we stick to like euclid's fifth postulate about parallel lines never meeting in infinity if atoms merely fell infinitely without a curved universe right without a curvature of space they would merely fall without ever producing these chaotic vortices that sarah is trying to describe that that appear in things like that appear in the hydraulic model which is why he'll distinguish between homeo homeoresis versus homeostat which is just which is the static way of looking at it's hydrostatics right where you're looking at say um you know you're looking at the flow of, of water in a relatively stable sense maybe just like a fucking bathtub versus the ocean which is hydro which is that's dynamic it has a dynamic model which is where you get maelstroms and you get the unpredictability of the of the the turbo of the the turbine you get the vortexes so i think that too is why i think the liz and Guatri are talking about the the hydraulic model as this political innovation where we are trying to look at smooth spaces like the sea which then 
obviously becomes paradoxically striated for understanding something like the fleet and being right they look at virilio and talk about the fleet and being where you're trying to occupy you're trying to delineate a space to occupy and i think that's why the the paradoxical status of something like the engineer like archimedes who is thinking the hydraulic model par excellence he is also this innovator of maritime warfare I think that too is why for Deleuze and Guattari, the, something like the blacksmith, the metallurgist is kept at a remove from the centrality of society because he's this paradoxical figure. He's the master of the, the flow, flows of the, the molten weapon who can create tools for agriculture, but also weapons for war. So there's something interesting about the engineer too in Deleuze and Guattari's thought, like Archimedes, who is put to death by the Romans, dies at the hand of the sword, but he is this master of, of warfare as well. That's not necessarily something like Sare takes up thematically in the work, but he does point to it a little bit, right? Where he talks about, keeps talking about Archimedes as a Syracusan, but he's, he's thinking through um, mastering the, the flows, if you will, has a, puts one kind of at a remove from, uh, well, it's to a certain extent, it's it's the it's the dangerous, it's the exteriority of the war machine to the state, as I'll say, right? And the state's wanting to, to capture it, having to capture it and appropriate it. And I think that, that that's to what they see in this opposition between royal science and minor science. And I think that they see in Sayre this this invention of liquid history, this this promotion of a hydraulic model is they take it to be the investigation of the war machine. I'm not sure how Sayre felt about that. I would love to see his like response to a thousand plateaus. I wonder if he's there's some letter he wrote to Deleuze and like, hey, that was cool. Okay. He writes about uh in the book, he writes about Lucretius discussing this very fact of like, look, we live this limited amount of time. We're not we're not guaranteed rebirth. I don't think we have rebirth. Why isn't it the, the lowest point to compete and to wage war and wage battle when we have this finite blip in which to like compose ourselves with, um, with wisdom? And I think it's similar to, to Nietzsche talking about the will to power is perverted or basest when it is turned into the will to have power and to wield power right i think that's where that's part of i think what foucault is saying in the preface to anti-oedipus when he's like one of the axioms of anti-oedipus or one of the ethical principles is don't become enamored with power all of these thinkers are in line with kind of pointing out the kind of seeds of fascism embedded in the in the lust for power I watched that movie Pie the other night, Saturday evening, because for one, I love the little scene about about Archimedes, the king of Syracuse, and is trying to get him to solve this question of is this gift he received made of solid gold? And he like agonizes for weeks over it and can't sleep and like takes a bath and then that's how he mythologically at least that's the legend the, develops the you know the concept of uh, what is it displacement. 
and volume place, yeah he he basically invents hydrostatics in this legend right he yeah the eureka is a greek word that we know because it's what he supposedly shouts in his bathtub imagine him playing with a golden rubber ducky or something like this right also interestingly though in that movie is you do have a lot it's a big focus on mathematics and prediction and the main characters trying to develop or trying to uncover a pattern within the stock market that mm-hmm. can be like mobilized to whatever predict the future prices etc and there's a few times where you'll see these vortices develop like i think he puts cream into his cup etc and then mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. he's talking to this numerologist or i don't know right. it was one of these like hasidic guys that's really into mathematics and they start like mapping out these points and it's a spiral i just had this idea this is i might even cut this out but i was thinking maybe the reason you can't predict the price is because it's decided in the last instance. I like you say that because Sarah has a line in there where he's like, there, there are no last, right. There are only instances. (laughs) Yeah. There are only instances there, but it's like, it's like, which way is the Kleinemann, which way is the Adam going to swerve? You know what I mean? I don't know. Or in in which way, like which way relative to where, yeah, yeah. When, where is the Kleinemann going to appear? Yeah. I think that that's, the fascination with studying stable flows, static fluids versus dynamic. He brings up Bernoulli, right? Which is, I mean, there's so many different Bernoullis and they're all famous, but obviously like, <laughs> I think he brings up Daniel versus, uh, um, he calls him Jacques. We know him as Jacob Bernoulli, who I think was his uncle, right? Where it's only when you look at, he's, he's like experimenting with these pipes and looking at flows of water through these pipes, but you expand the pipe enough and then you start to have instabilities, right? You start to have these kind of unpredictable vortices. You have turbulence develop outside of these narrower pipes that you're dealing with. And so whenever I think of like something like the super soaker, I always think of Bernoulli's principle and shit like that, right? Which has to do with- I was going to say, I've experimented with pipes before. Uh. Yeah. Right. So you have I mean, my permission to kill me. Nah, it's, it's <laughs> Go all ahead. good. You just think about flow flows under pressure and how pressure is is treated in in fluids to get things like pounds per square inch. Anyway. I mean, there's even weird shit with like, you know, the way that like a P trap, for example, works in a toilet is like it's the curving of the pipe. Basically, that mitigates the gases, you know, reemerging from the toilet. Yeah, Obviously, okay. that's gas. You know, what is gas but liquid that's traveling very fast? Some of the same principles are used to study the flow totally, yeah. of air. And, you know, earlier we could say we were, when we were discussing Einstein and Bergson, we were discussing the flow of time. Oh, uh, yeah. Good, which good is, point. Yeah. Which is something fascinating, too. Yeah, totally. Um, which, you know, I think that's why he calls for this invention of liquid history, because he is thinking about how we think of the flow of time. And, I think that's what I was trying to get at a little bit with how we think of the flow of time in science is constantly like a staircase or something constantly like moving, progressing. And I think that for, for Sarah, there's like, there's this contingency where we forget or repress. I'm kind of thinking more into Liz and Guattari saying repress. We repress minor science, nomadic science, whatever you want to call it. We repress these scientific insights or they get lost or forgotten. And so I think that's why there is this disorder in the sciences for Sarah. And so it's 
you know, I think that it's too easy to fall into a kind of false way of conceiving science as this kind of like linear progress towards the absolute or something. And I think that one might say that about history too. I mean, you know, that's the question of the telos, whether it exists or not in Hegel's understanding of history as this like this progression towards freedom, towards the good that might be called into question with the same, in the same way that one could call into question the progress of the sciences as being this linear step-by-step progress. There are contingencies and deviances that could be taken that could foreclose other possibilities. We don't have to go into sci-fi to think this, right? That, that certain pathways might foreclose others that would have allowed for a whole tech tree unlocking, you know, whatever the fuck you want to call it. There are people that think that there's like a slant in nature's evolution towards more deterritorialized forms, right? Talking about the way that the large bodies form and smaller bodies, etc. The earth was just formed from a bunch of elements that fused together due to gravity and pressure and shit like that. The earth emerges and then we emerge in terms of the scale but then it goes in weird directions too because of you know we start with single-celled life and then we go to multicellular now that would be an example of the way that nature prefers deterritorialized forms but in terms of the way that i don't know this size thing is kind of strange and the way that things develop from like this kind of top down yet also bottom up the way that the earth was formed was by small pieces put together. They form this larger body, and then the larger body gives birth to smaller bodies. That's a weird... Do you see what I'm trying to get at? A galaxy is an accretion of stars that travel around a certain center of gravity. Galaxies make up the universe, or you could even... Or, you know, start with the solar system, right? Rocky bodies that are orbiting a star, a bunch of stars all orbit a center of gravity they make up a galaxy a bunch of galaxies they make up a universe yeah i mean you're talking about different scales for different fields i suppose you could say an atom would be like a cell an atom of whatever planet right a bunch of atoms of planet material accrue and accrete into a body the same sort of way that like a unicellular organ eventually accretes into a conglomeration of cells. I think this is why Sayer talks about the creode, which is to describe the path a cell takes when it's the quote-unquote best path it takes to form its own specialized organs. And if there is a disturbance to the system, the creode describes how there is a kind of self-correction for that path to continue to be taken. That was one of the words I, I didn't recognize when Sayer brought it up for the first time in the in those opening chapters keeps talking about the creode which was a term coined by some i guess biologist i'm not sure i'd have to look but that's partly what i see you describing is this sort of optimal path which wouldn't necessarily be the thalweg which is kind of a maximal path or a maximal declination but there's an optimal path to, and I think that, that that's where the ethics comes back in, especially towards the end of the book where he's talking about the wise man. I mean, if we want to think about philosophers, maybe not being wise men or 
friend of wisdom, right? Lover of wisdom. There is this search for optima, which also coincidentally, especially since we're talking about Lucretius, who is more or less, if not following Lucretius directly, is inheriting some of his principles, the optima for living happily, living with wisdom is finding the minima, right? A little bit of the Lewis talk about a little bit of urban water, but I think Epicurus says like a little bit of um, bread and water, one can contend with the happiness of the gods, right? It's like, so there is a way of circumscribing the, our desires, which is not the same as like seeding ground on them, but maybe finding that, that creo, that optimal, that best path for the libido, if you will, to form its attachments and, and cathexes and whatnot. And there's a way in which it can be done violently. I mean, one could just say like, there's an analogy with destratifying too quickly, right? You were just talking about deterritorialization, but there is a, a sense in which if what you're if your idea about nature deterritorializing progressively, I do think it's obviously contingent. I know you haven't ruled that out, but it would also be a question. Yeah, of, I mean, um, I think it would be similar to the the sort of Kleinemann has a very slight. Yeah, there's a slight, preference I mean, for. Yeah, we could find that in in the way in which there could be finding optimums for declining the libido. I'm just thinking there's yeah. a way in which one could plunge a little too quickly into um or I was break thinking off about, too quickly i was I mean, thinking about flows in terms of maxima and minima just because of there's a certain water will always seek the lowest point path of least resistance i've made the claim metaphorically that capital has the same mm. property that it will always seek the path of least resistance so if it doesn't have to alter the prior social whatever that much it'll adopt whatever it has to up to a point but it's going to seek out the path of least resistance to its aims maybe that's due to efficiency efficiency is, is one way to call it if we're thinking about what i mean even just stuff. flows of water not, not even to get as abstract as like the discussion of the flows of capital but i mean efficiency i guess is it feels like a human imposed value right. to, yeah. to, to discuss it but it, but if we take it in the broad sense in a way, taking the path of least resistance is an efficiency, right? That is what efficiency is to a certain degree. Yeah. Although, I guess that's kind of limited, right? What's the most efficient? You know, the shortest path between two objects is a straight line. And I'm just thinking about the resistance, declination and flows, energetics. All of that goes into discussing the, uh, the Kleinemann. And I think that it's it's worth meditating on. I don't have an immediate response, but I, I do think that that's, um, that's good. I know there's like a billion other things we could talk about, but <laughs> we, I had tried to think of putting an hour limit on this and we've gone for almost two now. So Have we really? Has it been yeah. that long? We may have started recording closer to eight, but... Yeah, that makes sense. But we did get to talk about a bunch of, bunch of good shit. The question about the optimalization of dynamics. I think that's what I was, I think that's what we were just talking about, but we were just working. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. I guess that's true. So I'm glad you brought up, I'm glad you brought up that point about capital like water, but it's ironic too, because 
in my back of my head, I'm thinking of our friend uh, Griffin Melson, who we had on, right, where he might be like Marx's tendency of the rate of profit, the fall. Maybe there is already this demand of of going back to to equilibrium. Um, a death drive. <laughs> a death drive. You know, the Kleinemann is takes more and more effort becomes less and less well i mean it's entropy ultimately it's entropy, right? like we right. talked about right it's like which, which i brought up in passing yeah right so to produce something you have to waste something you have to sacrifice something yeah. to go back to our discussion with um with asset horizon last week i mean i think that this is why i brought up the second principle because if right deriving from the principle is about I think Sarah brings it up because it's, it's kind of the flow of heat declining. What's gotten from it is that not all the heat in the system can be put to work, can produce work. So you don't have this perpetual mobile, right? There's always, whether it be through friction or whatever the fuck, there's always some kind of uh, waste to use the term that you just use. And I think that that's what I was trying to think when you brought up the etymological link between the anaclytic and Kleinemann is how perhaps not, a, not all libidinal energy is able to, whether it be cathected properly or, or to be, um, to be put to work in the cyclical apparatus, that there's always some kind of leakage or some kind of, some kind of waste. That's something that I think we can think about. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, more broadly. And, um, I mean, the orbital stuff with the death drive too. also, I mean, that's kind of like adjacent to that discussion mm -hmm. as well, which I think is really fascinating. Exactly. That's probably what. It... There's a kind of stasis to the death drive and it's like, it has that sort of circular motion. It's a vortices of its own. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, I, I it's a vortices. It, yeah. If Freud is trying to think the death drive in this biological speculative way and be more speculative than he normally is to think about this returning there's like this elasticity to organisms to ontogenesis where there is right. this devolution or involution to prior forms i do think that one could see it also much more humbly as theorizing entropy in psychical libidinal systems but we can yeah. leave that as a hypothesis <laughs> to be investigated. Because I think that one thing psychoanalysis analysts will be singular and never agree on is what the fuck the death drive means. Right? <laughs> yeah. So it's a multiplicity, man. <laughs> it's uh, what was it? I was, I think I've said this for, for body without organs before, although I only meant it half jokingly, where it's like, it's like the term mana in Levi Strauss, where it's, um, it's an empty signifier or whatever. It's, it, it sort of fits in. It's a shapeshifter, right? It's able right. to take on whatever you need it to. It's like Humpty Dumpty. I mean, when I say whatever I want, whenever I say what I want, right? It's like, it's not how it works, right? But um, it's a good paradox. We can end there, bro. Thank you all for joining us on this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. The very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity. Including the ultimate form of security, which is
let's not have a misunderstanding here. What I meant is the following. With nothing left but recycled, whitewashed, lobotomized people, as in a block work orange.